This is Podco Media Networks. Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Dr. Devin Powers, Associate Professor of Advertising at Temple University, and she's the author of On Trend, The Business of Forecasting the Future. Welcome to The Deep Dive. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I always say this. I, this is like going to be the second interview where I talk about how excited I am to have a guest on the show. But it's actually very heartfelt because I'm pretty good at curating. So I pick awesome people. So I never interview someone that I think is going to suck. And, <laughs> and then secondly, obviously, this is a culture based show. I'm really interested in this in these topics. And I read your book cover to cover. And I think it's one of the best books on this topic that I've read for at least two reasons. And then I'll like, there'll be a question following this, but I really, I really want to urge people to, if they haven't already gotten the book upon hearing this show, I hope they will get the book because not only is it very timely in the sense that the references are very much in this moment. So I think it is very academically, but yet presently relevant. You've done within the book what very few people have done, which is you've cited an incredible amount of information, both historical and present in the form of interviews and other books and source material and weaved it into the story. And that's not something that's very often done. So I found myself when I was reading the book, like you just gave me like 10 more things to read. So thanks for more books. And, and, I guess uh, I guess you're welcome. I guess you're welcome. Yeah, you know, yeah. Your nightstand will be uh, that much taller with books on it. But oh my goodness, it's you know. ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so definitions are very important to me. I stress language. Language matters. Probably a pain in the ass to most of the people that I know because I'm always asking them questions about what they mean based on the words they chose. And you started off much in the same way with spending a lot of time at the very beginning of the book, really laying a case for what trends are in the first place. So I think that's a very relevant place to start with, you know, what is your definition of a trend and how does that differ from a fad? Yeah, so I think of trends as impermanent cultural shifts, right? So those shifts can be short-term or long-term. They can be, you know, sort of involve one sector of the population, or they can kind of be macro across the entire population. But really the important thing about trends is that they are identifiable shifts. They have something to do with deep-seated needs and values and desires within people and within the culture. I actually think that fads sometimes can speak to those big dynamic changes. But the thing about fads is that they sort of come and go. They're fly by night. They pass in a moment. And they tend not to stick around because they often don't have those kind of deep roots to people's needs and their imaginations and their desires, right? So a trend is going to, even if a trend doesn't take 
you know, it doesn't stick around for a very long time, it's at least going to be kind of situated in what, in something that's very deeply human. And it's interesting because I, I want to also contextualize trends and how they exist within a larger construct of culture. So this wasn't initially one of my questions, but because you said something that really made me think about the permanence of things, right? And how that factors into these conversations. So I'll give two examples. One is I've noticed now there's pushback in general marketing spaces around purpose. So, you know, and, and this is imperfect, but I've noticed in, in sort of my informal pulse on what people are talking about, what people are saying, they've been purpose, purpose matters, purpose matters. And then they shift it now to, well, people don't actually really care about this. So this was just a branding tool. And so that's the one data point. So just kind of hold that one. And then D to C, direct to consumer, right? People are saying, oh, all these companies came out and they're pushing this as a new way of, of marketing and building their brand. But just in the past week to 10 days, we've seen brandless fail. We've seen reports that Blue Apron is, you know, they're on their way, right, to mm-hmm. to failing. And these were once darlings of the D2C era. So I'm curious, just in that frame, and these are just two examples, I would make the argument that there's still something deeper going on beyond these particular snapshots. And so I want to hear your thoughts on that permanence versus these sort of maybe their macroeconomic business shifts. Did it make sense? Yeah, let me see if I can uh, I can sort of dig into that. So there's a couple of things in your question or in your comment, right? The first is that just because something speaks to a trend doesn't mean that it's going to last. It doesn't mean that it's going to resonate with the consumer. And so there's such a thing as poor management practices, right? There's such a thing as being in a saturated marketplace, right? And no amount of currency is going to sort of mitigate against those factors. So I think that's so, so that's part of it. Second thing that relates to your comment is that I think that business is very trend oriented and also very fad oriented, meaning people are always kind of looking to the new thing. They're looking to kind of get that leg up on the competition, management strategies and marketing strategies. You know, there's a lot of new buzzwords that come out every quarter or every season or every year that are kind of changing the language that we use when we talk about these dynamics. But the thing that sticks with me and why, well, the way that I would think about it is to say that like the relationship between the business and the consumer is changing. That's the thing that we know for sure. And we know that that relationship is changing in such a way that consumers feel on the one hand, very much more empowered and companies are kind of They're a little bit hesitant about that power, right? Because that power kind of destabilizes things for them. But on the other hand, consumers feel overwhelmed. They feel bombarded by information. And they also don't necessarily know where their information is going or how it's being used, right? So those kind of data things. And I see those as being the kind of big macro things that have been around for at least two decades, right? In terms of, and and very much in the last decade, you know? So that's a way of saying that if we think about the sort of long-term macro trend, these kind of smaller events, they speak to it, but they're not indicative of the fact that the trend is disappearing. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And time is going to be something that comes up a lot in this conversation because there's a philosophical side of me that kind of views time in these disconnected ways. It's not as linear as the way we lay it out. 
And then there's the pragmatic use of time from a business perspective. We've already talked about that short term versus long term and the patience it takes to actualize some of these ideas. There's a, um, I used to be a trader and time is obviously of essence there, but there's a danger of being, you know, sometimes you're too early for a trade and sometimes you're too late. And, and I think trend work, do you find that that same idea can also exist where you can identify something, but if you're too early, it doesn't quite work. And if you're too late, then you're in that crowded space again, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's sort of the adoption curve right there. The idea that there are innovators and there are early adopters and, you know, early majority, late majority, that sort of thing. The other part of this, though, and I think I think some brands are smart about this and some are not, is that not everybody wants to be early, right? Not everybody wants to hit those innovators. Some people actually want to be where a marketplace is saturated and crowded and kind of doing what other people are doing, because that's where the majority of people are, right? So Mm -hmm. not everybody, you know, so the thing about being too early is really a question of, are you too early for, I mean, it's in part a question of, are you too early for your brand identity? And it's possible that uh, that's something that moves a little bit later does kind of catch the zeitgeist at the proper moment for that brand. So one of the things we talked about in my class, I'm teaching a class on trends right now, and we talked a lot about the plant-based meat phenomenon, Mm -hmm. right? And where are companies... And the idea that, you know, so Burger King adopted a plant-based meat burger fairly early, but a lot of the other fast food chains have not, or they're just kind of starting to, right? Now, Dunkin' Donuts has a plant-based meat. McDonald's is, is flirting with this as well. So that's a moment where, like, for Dunkin' Donuts, now is the right time for Dunkin' Donuts to be doing this. It wasn't two years ago when, you know, people were standing in line in New York City to get an Impossible Burger. That wasn't the time. So do you see what I mean? That, yeah, like, I think that, you know, when you're thinking about a trend, you have to also think about what consumers are you trying to reach and at what time is right for those consumers. And it might not be the same for every company. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting distinction that some brands, they market themselves or they position themselves as the innovator, right? Even as in the same way that we as individuals might fall on different curves, others aren't that, right? Like they kind of have to get in where they fit in, I guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the problems and fallacies is that a lot of businesses want to be on that cutting edge and they actually shouldn't try. <laughs> you know? yeah. like, they would be much better off if they sort of took a seat back. And, I, you know, I, a lot of smart companies do this. Right. But just take take a seat back, kind of survey the territory, wait for the best practices to shake out and then make a move. Yeah. What do you think like urges or pushes a company to, you know, get involved in things that might not fit? Like, you know, I use this. There's no sidelines that if organizations want to be in culture spaces, they have to take the good and the bad with that. Some do it better than others, but then sometimes I'll see something or I'll get a brief and I'm like, what are you thinking about? Like this totally, even if you were to do this right, you're going to be uncomfortable doing it. So what do you think motivates these organizations to kind of go against their brand identity, particularly when it comes to trends? I think companies follow each other too. You know, I don't want to say that companies are human, although legally they are, right? But they're made up of human beings. Yeah. And they're made up of human beings who, despite having a lot of data and research and numbers to determine, you know, what direction they might go, they're also basing that on human judgment and on what their peers and their competitors are doing. 
And if somebody comes in with an idea that they saw, you know, a peer or an aspirational brand doing, and it just sort of sits with them, you know, it's, they might try it out even against sort of, I don't want to say against better judgment because the good judgment is in that room making that decision, but they might try it out even though it might ring hollow or fall flat when it gets to market, you know? So I think that's the piece. It's like companies follow one another too. You know, they're looking at what their, what other brands are doing and they're looking across sector as well. So, you know, Macy's is looking at what Coca-Cola is doing. Macy's not a good example because they just closed 400 stores, right? But um, you see what I'm talking about? Like the retailers are looking to the automotive and they're looking to the beverage and they're looking to the health and wellness. And it's kind of all cross-pollinating, I think. Yeah, there's a definite de-siloing that happens. And I think it's fair to say to your point that organizations just can't look at even their peer groups if they're going to try to survive. There are best practices to be found everywhere. And in the book, you talk a lot about futurism, being a futurist. And I'm going to ask this question somewhat facetiously because I'm not really attacking the term, but I have been very critical of the term futurist only because I think oftentimes there's not a lot of accountability. So it's very difficult. Like, you know, again, coming from that Wall Street experience, you know, our analysts, a lot of them were charlatans as well. But at least if they had a buy rating on whatever the hell stock, and the stock doesn't do well, I have an accounting to say, oh, well, you had a buy rating on that. And, you know, they were ranked by Morningstar. You know, we had all these things to kind of rate how good an analyst was, picking on analysts as an example. And I look at the landscape of futurist and with few exceptions, there's a lot of folks out there who, you know, to me, they just say things, right? Like, they'll just... You know, I mean, maybe there's a logic behind it, but I'll read something where they're like, oh, in 2050, we're going to be doing this. And I'm like, fuck are you talking about? Right. Like, (laughs) and then there's like no way to ever retroactively go unless you're really going to do the work of that. But very few people say like, oh, well, what did like Seth Godin say 10 years ago? Right. They just assume because of the brand that he's a genius. And so, yeah, he's this guy who has a pulse on things. And I'm like, Really? Is that really the case? So that's where I'm coming down on it, right? So Mm -hmm. in your research, you spent a lot of time, you've addressed or tried to, I think, in the book, like put rigor behind this idea of futurism. So I wanted to get your opinion on the term, understanding that we do use it as kind of a shorthand, but what do you think about the relevance of it as as a phrase? Yeah, well, I think that futurism is very trendy right now. I think the future is trendy, by which I mean that not only because of the kind of moment we're in with, you know, the geopolitical situation and the environmental situation with Generation Z, this gigantic generation sort of reaching, you know, prime consumer age is making a lot of people think about the future. But I think also the future has become kind of the word we use to kind of look smart or like sound like we're prescient or, you know, I think people throw it around. So that's the first thing that I would say. You know, on that same line of thinking, futurist is not like lawyer, right? It's not like doctor. There is no school that you have to go to. There is no credential specifically. There is no test. So a lot of people can use that title and speak that language without necessarily having any rigor behind their practice. So there are a lot of people who just say things. Now, let me sort of qualify this. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the people who say those things are in positions of influence so that people will listen to them. 
You know, so if you are, you know, not to say that Elon Musk has identified himself as a futurist necessarily, but, you know, if you're somebody like Elon Musk, or if you're an Ajit Vakas, or you're, you know, somebody who's, who people listen to for their wisdom, and who's somebody who is inspirational to others, then some of that, like, question about rigor just becomes one of, do people pay attention and move when you say move? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're one of those people, then you can kind of, it's almost like the tail wagging the dog in a way, mm-hmm. because you can influence things. You can make people think about taking steps that they might not have otherwise thought about. But then we have to get into this kind of one more layer, which is that in my interviews with people who work in futurism and trends, who do the work of, you know, who do futures research, many of them are extremely well-read people. They're very well-connected people. They're going to conferences. They're reading all of the, you know, trade publications that you or I might only read a couple of of. They're reading all of them. Mm -hmm. They're constantly going to conferences. So that makes them very well-connected. And it gives them a lot of information that does give them a good sense of where the pulse is. So that's why I think that there is some teeth behind it. And there are some ways that people can do futurism well. And I think people who are very well connected and who are paying attention do have a better idea than a lot of people who aren't paying attention where things are going to go. Yeah. And again, my push is on, I think, probably the charlatans. Because I feel that, and again, these are opinions, one guy's opinion, but I'm the guy with the, with the show and the microphone. <laughs> that the people you described in your last example, not exclusively, but very often, I feel like they're the folks that are known by other smart people like yourself and maybe a sprinkle of what I call the general population. But then we have a lot of the charlatans that are very widely known. I used to organize a conference. I speak at a lot of conferences. And so I see kind of who's speaking around and I'm like, come on, this person's never been right about anything, <laughs> right? Like, but yet they're a keynote somewhere, right? And it's, it's just odd to me because I feel like we would be better served listening to the people like you and the others that you cite, many of whom are in the book, right? Like not to trash Elon Musk. I do that enough on Twitter, but you know, yes, I'm not going to say this, this guy's somewhat talented (laughs) to some extent. I'm being generous, but at the same time, when he talks about like, oh, I'm going to, has anybody ever thought about going underground and having like these moving cars? I'm like, yeah, dude, it's the subway, right? Like that's not, (laughs) that's not some great revolutionary thought, but against a context of where we put resources, that's where it becomes problematic, right? Because this guy is a person that can push people's imaginations and resources in a way that seems like this ain't the future at all, right? Mm -hmm. This is just a bad, a worse version of the past that worked pretty good. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think somebody like, you know, there's so many different things going on. Somebody like Elon Musk, since that's who we're talking about, is willing to speak in an entertaining and definitive way and in a fashion that anybody who is very deeply enmeshed in these practices would never speak. Mm-hmm. You know, like somebody who's done the work about studying the future is never going to say X is definitely going to happen. They're going to say, X, Y, and Z are our options. You know, X is looking at 85%, but it's contingent on this and this, right? And the whole work, the way that I see the utility of futurism is not to tell you 
what exactly is going to happen in five years. It's to get you thinking in a way to prepare for multiple contingencies of what could happen in five years in a way that's informed by the current trends and dynamics and where things are driving. So yeah, that's just so different than being able to say like, we're going to have a hyperloop in New York City in five years. No, we're not. Yeah. No, we are not. (laughs) But that sounds good. And that plays well. And that gets people angry and it gets people excited and it sort of, you know, starts conversations. And that's the work, right? I, I actually, you know, if I'm being charitable, I think that that's in a way important work too, because mm-hmm. it's work that's inspirational and it starts debates in a way that the kind of more qualified or moderate or temperate speech doesn't. You know, mm-hmm. nobody's going to get super worked up about what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they will. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll be interested, but they're not going to be like, oh, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, I, I guess. I don't know. I think maybe it's, I'm speaking to the preacher to choir in that respect, but I don't know. I, I think it's actually more dangerous or harder to do what you described, which is to, in a world where people are looking for what I think are easy answers, Meaning they're looking for someone to say, if I hit this button or push this lever, this thing is going to happen. I think it's much more admirable and complex to admit that we, the future is not this one linear path that gets us into that time conversation, right? That it's their alternatives, right? It's a decision tree. Like we can go in this way, we can go in that way, we can go in this way, if then, rather than just yes, right? So... I don't know. I I think there's a lot more to be said for that type of work than for just things shouted from a mountaintop that don't really matter. You know, I don't know if that's a question, but more of a declared statement of preference. I mean, I, I, I would agree with you. And that's why, you know, I am someone who does what I do and I don't you know, go on CNN and get into screaming matches with people. <laughs> like, uh, not the, you know, and I think that that, you know, there is a risk in that kind of entertaining one-liner kind of approach to futurism or, or really anything mm-hmm. that gets us in a lot of hot water and sort of can cause a lot more problems than it solves. But again, if I'm being charitable, I do think that there are moments for inspiration and there are moments for kind of just being dazzled by the amazing and awe-inspiring vision that somebody unfurls for you. And if you are, if you're one of those people who's moved by that, and if that causes you, if that's the sort of, you know, shock that you need to kind of get you out of your routines and thinking in a different way, then, then I'm not going to fault someone for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely the opportunity arises, go on CNN, just avoid the shouting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we'll see about that. I do, if, I do like to, sh- if someone shouts at me, I will shout back. <laughs> yeah, I guess the, the trick is to get the segment that is shouting light <laughs> rather <Okay>. than <laughs> shouting less. So if you, okay. if you book one of those cool, what are people buying for the summer? It tends to not be a lot of shouting there, right? <laughs> like yeah. I would like, yellow, yellow is what they're going to buy. No. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> get on like Good Morning America. Or something yeah, that's like yeah. much more sedate. But yeah. this, you know, we touched on a few things. Time came in there, these kind of alternative options. But I want to get to this backdrop. I'm going to get back to that. But I want to talk about like culture in the societal way in terms of how it affects the way we think about trends, right? In the sense that we come from different environments. We all have different perspectives that we bring to things. And 
How do you think those sort of cultural norms and backgrounds affect one's ability to examine trends? You know, one of the things you highlighted in the book and as a practitioner, I could cite in my life, a lot of these spaces look the same. There's not a lot of diversity and it's always ironic to me, you know, black guy from Brooklyn kind of group in a particular way, understand culture. And I'm like, the people talking about these things don't look like the people making these things. So that was a lot. But I'm kind of curious about where you think culture or backgrounds fit into this sort of world of trends, futures, predictive type work. Yeah, well, that kind of connects to what you were saying before, because the future is not one thing and the future is multiple and the future is diverse. And I think sometimes when we hear, you know, these visions of, you know, AI is going to take over our lives and robots are going to be doing everything and we'll have, you know, a sentient web or whatever it is that you want to be talking about. They're kind of the fantasies of a particular demographic of people, meaning Mm -hmm. they're the fantasies often of kind of, you know, white men who grew up watching sci-fi and want a replicator to be real. Um, so, yeah. and honestly, you know, I've been in some of these spaces and seen people who have actually said, yeah, I grew up watching Star Trek and I want that to happen. I want that to be my reality. But not only is that not the fantasy of everyone in the world, but those fantasies sort of crowd out other fantasies and they crowd mm-hmm. out other options for people and they eliminate or they sort of forget this notion that in the future, the struggles of the present and the past are still going to be with us. And they're going to be with us as long as we fail to address those struggles in the present. So, you know, I think about this, for instance, you know, voice assistive technology is something that I think about a lot. And I think about how those voice assistive technologies often are gendered female, right? So Alexa and Siri are female. They're meant to be kind of servants, they're almost recreating this notion of servitude or having a, having a maid or having a mother who's there to take care of you. They don't recognize certain kinds of speech. So if you have, a, you know, if you speak with an accent that's a different accent than the kind of mainstream American generic middle class white accent, it might not understand what you say. And that has everything to do not just with the people who are in the room, because my guess is that the people in the room are actually maybe a little more diverse than we would imagine. But it has to do with almost, you know, that group and those companies' imagination of what their market wants mm-hmm. and that it's easier to make a technology that fits with the mainstream white market than it is to fit with one that can do, you know, kind of something that would serve a diverse community. So I mentioned that to say that I think that, you know, the companies and the players that are really focused on diversity and inclusion and on equity and on trying to think about the role of difference in how we think about the future are going to be the ones who are going to have that they're going to be able to build that goodwill in a way that companies like, you know, a lot of the big tech companies like Facebook and Google, a lot of the AI innovators like OpenAI and whatnot, they just are not ready to do and they're not willing to do. And because they didn't do it from the ground up and they almost see like diversity as being a corrective that can come after the fact, they're also never going to get there, you know. And that's really frustrating because I did a essay talking a little bit 
like not a deep, deep thing, but it was it mentioned voice and the, and the power of kind of oral fixations, right? Like how we use sound to communicate. And there was, I did mention this idea of, okay, why are our assistants, like you said, why are they gendered at all, right? There was a company, I, I can't remember the name off the top, that was experimenting with voices that would be gender neutral, for example, to try to, I guess, counteract this bias that we have for using female voices when it comes to these kind of roles. And, you know, there was another article that I read that was even more disturbing about when Siri or Alexa are asked to identify certain women and come back with other words. The words are derogatory. Like it's, it seems like all of this stuff is built into kind of cooked into it, right? We're bringing our own biases in. So I wonder you know, as we look out into trends and, and what kind of future we want to build, how do we incorporate not only these different perspectives from a diversity, obvious diversity points, but also ethicists and, you know, English majors and historians, people that can put context to the future that people are trying to build, right? Like, where do you think the sticking point is or has been in, in having that happen? Well, I uh- your question reminds me, I think Google just hired their first sociologist. Did I just see that? I think that happened yesterday. <laughs> but, um, and you know, some of these companies are using anthropologists mostly for UX kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but some for consumer ethnography and other things that kind of touch upon these issues. I think a lot of it has to do with education. And by that, I mean, you know, computer science majors having requiring humanities and social science classes and those things not just being like an afterthought or like a, you know, a gen ed, but something that's integral to the curriculum so that people who are coming through universities are trained in those ways. But, you know, you're right in that this is a it's a difficult battle to fight because we live in a society that tends to, you know, say, show me the numbers and also tends to value kind of the technical knowledge. And it's much harder to quantify what, you know, some of these more humanistic and social science knowledges kind of bring to the table. They become very, it becomes very sort of obvious when you run into these problems, right? When you are, you know, for instance, using a camera that doesn't recognize a black face, doesn't do facial recognition on a black face, for instance, then you say, oh, you know, I really wish there had been a sociologist in that room, (laughs) right? But it's only when we come upon the problems that people are aware of the magnitude of the issue. So that's not really an answer to your question because the solution is the solution is is a difficult one to follow, but I just think that until companies embrace the importance of culture, until they, you know, they're hiring more ethicists and more sociologists and more sort of people who are culturally competent to kind of be part of the conversation and seeing those things as integral to the first moment, not things that you add at the last moment, right? That's the issue. And I'll just say one more thing about this. You know, all of these companies are very, very interested in culture. They're interested in culture insofar as they have, you know, ping pong tables in their offices. And they're interested in culture insofar as they use advertising and branding and messaging in order to kind of shape their brand in. But it's like, that's another example of showing culture as a corrective, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, we can, if we brand this and we have you know, a beautiful array of the human spectrum of colors and races and ages in our advertising, then we've done okay, right? So clearly they see it as a value. They just see it as a value that comes at the end of the conversation rather than mm-hmm. just the beginning. Yeah, and maybe even just a little superficial. I mean, culture mm-hmm. is 
you know, it to me, it's something that comes from margins, right? People see something that's not happening and they ask questions, right? Like they'll say, well, why does this work this way? And how come this is happening? And where do I fit into this conversation? And then they create something new, right? They push something. I, I think about the young lady who came up with the renegade dance most recently, right? And, you know, that was a story that really offended me on many levels. It just was a long history of people taking advantage of the work that comes from Black people, right? Particularly in, in this case, a young Black woman, but the entire conceit when I think about I go into so many offices and they're all like, oh, we need a TikTok strategy. We need to figure it out. And I'm like, TikTok sucks, right? Because it's <laughs> not even, because it's the place to me of the appropriate, right? It's not the place of discovery. And I think this was just another proof of that. So it was both individual story, meaning this young lady with this particular dance, but then it's platform-based, right? And so resources are going to flood to TikTok because they think it's this place to learn things when it's like, no, nah, they're just weak tea versions hmm. of other things, right? So like you've done and you've been in so many of these rooms, right? you travel around the world doing this and it's like, you know, I recognize like the Trend Wolves guys. I met them in Berlin in like 2012 and like Amy Webb, I met at Paley Center, like, I don't know how many years ago at a random event where I was like the only black dude, right? <laughs> um, but it was awesome because I will always say this and I'm sure you might've experienced this as well. When you're in a room, unfortunately being one of the only black people, but let's say the staff is more diverse, they always feed you first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's just an unknown, you know, a hidden code. It's not hidden to me, but yeah. it seems hidden to everyone else. People are just nicer to you. Yeah. yeah. And, you, you know, you, you may not be getting the special treatment, you know, but you're getting kind of, you may be getting the red carpet, but you're getting like the back door, right? Yeah. Like, and they're and like, you, okay, well here, come back here and we'll take care of you. Yeah. You're getting a lot yes. of shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of the, you know, chicken fingers are coming back around your way. Uh -huh. Everybody's like, wow, you're super popular, right? It's like, yeah, the hookup. But that's a trend thing, right? Like we recognize mm -hmm. other people might not recognize that that reality exists for us, right? right. Being, well, that, being in these spaces. Well, that goes into the, the same thing we were talking about before, which is that there are multiple cultures. There are multiple things that are going on and no one person can kind of see it all. So unless you're tapping into multiple kinds of perspectives, then your sense of the future is going to be really limited. And, you know, as we talked about at the very beginning of the conversation, for some people that works, you know, if you're the milk toast middle of the road and that's all you want, then, you know, I don't want to say that you shouldn't be thinking about diversity too, because you should, but, you know, I don't know, people get away with things maybe. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. There's in the history, I guess it's like maybe the first third or Whatever, there's a nice chunk where you kind of trace the history of trends and how we started to think about it in marketing and advertising and, you know, from the 1880s and different bullet points and stuff like that. And it's I'm curious what you think about sort of culture or not culture, but the future as this sort of counterculture conceit, this sort of futuristic utopia that was kind of cooked into maybe the, the counterculture of the 60s and early 70s as compared to how it is 
now? Do you see a difference? Is there a difference? Like, what are your thoughts on now that people are doing this as a job, (laughs) you know, versus the counterculture roots of it? Right. Well, so there's a book called From Cyberculture to, or From Counterculture to Cyberculture by Fred Turner that sort of traces that argument, right? (laughs) About how, you know, you take the hippies from the 60s and, you know, in California, and then a lot of them end up, not a lot of them, but a critical mass of them end up sort of foundational people in Silicon Valley. And then what's happened since there is that that culture has found a way to market. And a lot of that countercultural language about peace, about doing well for the world, about, you know, helping others, about just doing good, I think has become the kind of branding mechanism for a lot of these tech companies. In fact, yesterday in my class, we were talking about how Google changed its model from don't be evil to do the right thing, yeah. which I think, I mean, do the right thing, right? We can laugh all day about that. <laughs> It's not funny, but it also is telling about this kind of this trajectory, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That Google at one point was a company that thought it couldn't do evil and didn't want to, and then started to realize not only does that sound a little bit too sinister for their brand positioning, but it kind of also didn't work with how big they were. So it's harder to not do evil. It's much harder. (laughs) So yeah, so that's a way of saying that I think that that yeah, I think that my perspective is I think that the underground and I think that the true counterculture is it's not in Silicon Valley. It's not the language of peace, love and happiness. That's not what it is anymore. You know, a lot of, you know, when I talk to my students about the things that they are interested in and a lot of it is a much more realist and much more grounded in kind of the challenges and the opportunities that face them as the generation that's going to be living in a world of climate change and a world of, you know, political upheaval and things. So, so yeah, so I would say that the, it's speaking a different language now than it did in the 60s, for sure. Do we have future fatigue? Do you feel that like stuff is just so heavy? Like, I'll give you one really quick example. Actually, I'll give you two. So I just finished a book, My Sister's a Serial Killer, and it is written by a Nigerian woman author. And it's, it's kind of light. It's, it's kind of cool. A little bit of a beach read, maybe, in terms of its depth. And, you know, I like the book, but in general, some things kind of irritated me because bad characters were kind of getting away with stuff. And I think in my future fatigue, or maybe it's present fatigue, I'm tired of, like, the bad person winning, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so any future that presents that as an option, I don't automatically, I kind of don't want to mess with it, you know? So I'm curious, like, in light of all the things that you just talked about, the reality of dealing with, you know, kind of shitty politics and climate change and job prospects, all the things, are you feeling like our idea of the future is narrowing in a way or that fatigue that I talked about? Right. So that sense that like it's dystopian. So how do we kind of get out of that? Is that what you're? Yeah. Or it's, I don't know, even our dystopian doesn't seem that interesting anymore. I don't know. It's it's weird, right? Like I think like the matrix was kind of in a way dystopian once it was revealed because it was like, oh, the world doesn't exist anymore. But the construct of that was like, whoa, you know, now our dystopian is kind of like, meh. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's not it's not even it's not even really that interesting is my point. At least these are my 
thoughts about it. So I don't know. I feel like we're not even thinking 50 years down the line or 100 years down the line. We're kind of like, okay, can we make it to, I already see people complaining about 2020. They're like, can this year be over? (laughs) You know? Right. Right. I mean, what I would say is all of that adds up to me like escapism and it adds up to nostalgia, right? And I've seen so much talk about Obama, right? And people sort of reminiscing for that time. And my students are all wearing styles from the 90s, even if they don't know that that's what they're wearing, you know, and some of the music is sounding that way. And I just think that, and I see, you know, the Blue Origin and all of the sort of Richard Branson trying to get into space, Jeff Bezos, all those different companies as being about escaping um, and transhumanism. So I see escape as being kind of this moment where people, I like the term future fatigue, and it's not so much that, that people are, I mean, it's that people are tired and worried, but people are always looking for the next thing to do, even if that next thing is the past, or even if that next thing is interplanetary, or even if it's something that doesn't look like humanity right now. Right. So in that sense, I would say there's always interest in the future. It's just, is the future going in the direction? Like, is it going in a sort of linear progress or is it kind of doing something that's a little more nebulous and and interesting? And I think that that's where the moment we're in, where the future is is sort of changing its trajectory, if you will. Uh, People are thinking about it differently. Nostalgia is in my notes is attached to that (laughs) question (laughs) because in you know, I'm a very political person, but this ain't a political show, but it's life. So I feel like things kind of intersect and they matter. But like nostalgia, I think like there's a part of us like just that can do the Obama nostalgia. But I think someone like a Trump and MAGA is all about a nostalgia of, you know, a time that wasn't so sweet for the rest of us. Right. Like this idea of make America great again. I think it's steeped in a nostalgia that centers one vision. And so their nostalgia is tied to what they want the future to be, you know, which is very exclusionary. And maybe Brexit is that. Maybe all of these things is sort of like, you know, the British dying empire wants to kind of go back to something in their imagination. You know, um, so, you know, nostalgia, I think, can be good. But maybe in some of these sociopolitical spaces, it's it kind of sucks. Right. Like even incels. Right. Like they kind of want to bring women back to some stupid place and it's like who are you even mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah. so I'm curious like, ima- yeah I would say all of that is imagination all of it okay. yeah because the mythic past that people you know like the MAGA crowd want to take us back to that didn't exist actually right it existed in the Donna Reed show and that's about it <laughs> because the reality was always more complicated you know I always tell my students during that sort of you know stereotype of the 50s you have, that was the moment of civil rights. That was the moments of the beats. That was the moments of the Mattachine Society, starting with homosexual groups. And I use that word because that's the word that they used, right? Mm-hmm. That was the early moments of feminism. So, so that's a myth. And it's a myth and it's an imagination in the same way that an imagination about going to Mars is an imagination, you know? It's like everybody's trying to carve out an ideal version of a future or what they want tomorrow to be like, and they're drawing from the wells that they want to draw from. So even if I'm, you know, even if I, like my students who are obsessed with the show Friends and think that the Mm -hmm. Friends is what the 90s was like, 
even though I tell or clueless is what the nineties was like. And you yeah. say it was not like that, right? It's a caricature, but still they're they're finding their impulse for tomorrow from a reserve of imagination that's drawn from the past. And that's the I mean, I don't want to say that what the, you know, what our fascist political, you know, leaders are doing is equivalent to that because I clearly find that testable, right? Yeah. But, you know, I see it as part of the same kind of same yeah, yeah. activity. No, I agree. I love the way you frame that. Like that's a perfect place to think about imagination and myth because you're right, it wasn't true then and it's not going to be true in the future, right? <laughs> like we're going to find a different way through this. I, w- I want to make sure that we get one other thing, at least. I didn't even <laughs> touch some of this stuff, but okay. this is very important to me. These sort of two maybe challenged frames. One is Afrofuturism, which again, on that timeline, people will most likely anchor it in most recent history. You know, you have Black Panther and other sort of films and music projects. But then obviously in the 70s and 60s, even in the midst of civil rights, there was that same free jazz and, you know, I think like Earth, Wind and Fire album covers and all that kind of stuff, like Parliament, like, you know, there's all these data points, right, of this idea of Octavia Butler and blah, 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 blah. I feel like I got to name the people not to disrespect, but let's just assume all them folks are mentioned, right? Kind of compare that as a movement of the past X number of years to, you know, maybe what Huey Newton call it revolutionary suicide, right? Like this sort of nihilism that exists also in that undercurrent, right? I, I think about, you know, all of these like new rappers, right? Like 18 months ago, there's all these articles like, oh, there's a brand new wave of rappers and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know, I'm old school. I was like, I'm not really feeling these guys. (laughs) But then it's like so many of them are gone, right? Like through various means. So I'm like this whole new wave of folks have disappeared. And I think the music is somewhat nihilistic. I kind of hit on a lot of different things, but I'm curious, like, where you see those things diverging, converging. I I didn't want to leave this without specifically addressing like Afrofuturism and this kind of black nihilism, especially because so, so many of these conversations tend to dismiss those things or not include them anyway. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I would say in some ways that's like, I don't want to sound cliche or anything, but in some ways to me, that's like the black story is this like pairing of like hope and despair or this pairing of like, you know, trying to triumph. It sounds so cheesy, but like trying to triumph in the face of adversity and struggling against, you know, all of the systems of oppression. And I think that happens in the past and that happens in the future too, right? And the, you know, I see Afrofuturism as a struggle for recognition of Blackness in the future. Mm-hmm. And the importance of articulating Blackness in the future and to the future in sort of a movement to erase race, or at least to to sort of subjugate race and see it, as we were talking about before, as an afterthought or as like a bug to be coded out. Right? Mm-hmm. So that is, even in those, in its most optimistic, that is sort of a struggle against the nihilism that you're talking yep. about in a way, right? And annihilation, literally, So again, I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but I just think that you can't, you know, I tend to be 
think of myself as a, a sort of a pragmatist and realist, but mm-hmm. I think of myself as that, which is a combination of being an optimist and a, and a combination of being an optimist and a pessimist, because I don't think that you can ignore, you can't ignore the adversity of the moment and you can't ignore this impulse that's permeating through black culture of just like attack, mm-hmm. but you can't live there either. Yeah. You know, you really can't because that eats you from the inside out. Yeah, definitely. 100%. Let's, um, let's build something a little bit better. <laughs> I want to get us into off the dome. So okay. these are just <laughs> my rapid fire questions. And I think that was the perfect note on which to segue from questions to unfortunately the end. This time went by so quickly. <laughs> and, um, so you're at Temple, you're in Philly. And yeah. so I want to ask just... Grits versus Scrapple. <laughs> uh, grits, for sure. There's going to be a ton of people who listen to this who don't know what the hell Scrapple is, but we're not going to tell you. You got to look that up. It's a very silly yeah. thing. Yeah. There will be a spike in the Google searches for Scrapple after this. <laughs> now, you used to write about music. I don't want to say used to like you will never write about music again, but part of your background is in music journalism. And so you have to make one track and you can only pick one of these guitarists. So I'm going to give you a choice of three. But if you want to if you want to give me another name that I could have missed, feel free to do so. But these are the three that I'm offering right now. Okay, Prince. Oh, Jimi Hendrix. Oh, see, I knew you were going to say that one. Or Vernon Reed. Ooh, ooh. I almost said St. Vincent, but. I, I kind of went with three brothers instead. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> tough. But because my mother would be very upset with me if I didn't say Prince. Okay. <laughs> so I grew up in a Prince household. Okay. Uh, very much so, yeah. All right. Fair enough. We got to listen to moms. It's going to be another music question. You can only see one artist, living or dead. Who's it going to be and why? And this has to be somebody that I have not seen before. No, it didn't have to be. I didn't specify that, so I didn't even think about that caveat, but go for it. <laughs> I mean, not to reiterate from the previous question, because I probably would say Prince, but since I've actually seen Prince, ooh, I have to do I, I guess I'll, ooh, that, that is tough. I was going to say David Bowie, but mm. I also sort of want to say Michael Jackson. Okay. But I also, gosh, oh, that is, that, that's just tough. I'm going to, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't because if I keep going, you know, I would have loved to see, I would have loved to see love, you know, the psychedelic with yeah. Arthur Lee. I would love to see that. I would have been amazing. I would have loved to be at Monterey and just see that whole, all of those sixties artists. Yeah. It's a lot of music, right? Yeah. Like it's hard. Yeah. It's tough. A lot of music. It's hard. It's hard, but I'm an old soul. So yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, I'm, Clicking off one of my bands this summer because I'm going to see Rage Against the Machine. I've been telling everybody that I'm very excited. Um, yeah, yeah. Me and my crew, we got tickets like immediately. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. I hear they're playing some small venues, so hopefully you're getting a. No, we're seeing a massive garden, but still. Oh okay, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. It's Run the Jewels is opening. I'm good. I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. fine. I'm fine. This is going to be my last off the dome question before we go to our drops. So, what's the one tool that every futurist should have in their arsenal? If you're a futurist, what do you 100% need to have? When you say tool, do you mean like a physical tool or just like a cognitive, mental? 
Interpret how you will. Hmm. I would say an open mind because so often people let their ideologies cloud where they think things are going to go. So you need to be open to opinions and positions and perspectives that are not your own. Okay. Fair enough. That's awesome. Okay. So now we're going to get to the drop. All right. So you should have a drop. I have a drop. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? You go first because I get, I've never done this before. So <laughs> Okay. It's, it's super easy. This is just listing a thing or thing. Some people I ask for one drop, they give like three things and I do the same, but I only have one drop this time, which is a Netflix show that I recently binged and I absolutely thought it was amazing on so many different levels. Animation on Netflix, usually people are like very BoJack Horseman focused. And I think that's deserved because I've talked about the show before. I do love BoJack Horseman, but I watched an, a fairly new show. It came out in January called Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beast. Mm-hmm. And it was, it clicked almost every button, I think, for child and adult to watch. So I've been raving about it and it's called Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beast. And it's amazing. And that's my drop. Okay. All right. Well, I guess I'll share, maybe I'll share two. First, I'm going to copy you and say a Netflix show that I have been really into is a show called Sex Education. So it's a British show and it's actually, it's about high school, but it is a very smart and mature and just very diverse and really, really interesting show. And there's a, there's like a parent character. So like if you're, you know, over the age of 40, there's a char- there's characters you can identify with too. And it just seems, it's the kind of show that I wish was around when I was in high school, although it couldn't have been because the world was not ready for a show like that okay. uh, back then. But uh, it's very interesting. And then the other thing I would share is, I think I'm going to give a shout out to a book called Black Software by a guy named Charlton McElwain, who was one of my professors in graduate school. It just came out and it's about the integral role of Blackness and Black people and sort of the foundation of the internet and sort of how Blackness gets articulated through code. So great book and you should talk to him too. Yeah. Uh, good, good guy. Yeah. That is awesome. I was about to drop one. Um, I I cleaned up my language in that moment. That's awesome because I've seen people talking about this book and another guy that I love, I've actually interviewed him already. He teaches at Parsons. He, Tim Stock, he had pictures of it, I think on Twitter. I think it's Tim. And I took a, a screenshot of it so I wouldn't forget to check this out. So that's awesome. I'm glad you like yeah. triggered <laughs> triggered that for me. I'm going to co-sign that drop even though I haven't even read the book yet, but <laughs> I want to I wanted to read it because of the way it was positioned. I thought it was like super important. So that's awesome. Done and done. So this has been great. I want to thank you for being on the deep dive with me. Okay, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. It's been a pleasure having Dr. Devin Powers join me on the deep dive. We discussed her seminal work on trend, the business of forecasting the future. Who gets to be part of that conversation and why? The rigor that is needed to get a sense of where we are going, the role of time determining potential future outcomes, and so much more. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at Far Phil. To all my listeners, 
wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.